the Holy Gospel according to John, the second chapter. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Maker and our Redeemer. Amen. We are going to do one of those walk through the gospel reading type of sermons today with some pauses along the way to see what we see. John 2 verse 1 on the third day. Let's take our first pause there. Those words on the third day Besides reminding me a little bit of Easter, which is to say reminding me a little bit of new life to come, also in this context, give us context by referring in this case to it having been now three days since Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel to join his ever-emerging group of disciples. In John's telling of the story, Philip and Nathaniel are the fourth and fifth of the twelve whom he will eventually call. Which is to say that these opening words remind us that we are very still, very early on in John's Gospel. For at this point, John, Jesus has actually done nothing but be, be born, be baptized by John, and then begin to call his disciples. All of which is to point out that in this story, there are first impressions to be made for Jesus and his ministry for Jesus in John's Gospel. At this early on stage, John continues, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So, okay, so whose wedding was this? Don't know. Doesn't say. Which says to me that though weddings, perhaps stereotypically, are often thought of above all as the bride's day. And to be clear, stereotypes notwithstanding, I can tell you a few stories, and Pastor David can as well. I'm sure any pastor can tell you stories about brides who took that attitude to places you didn't even think you could have imagined. 
Nevertheless, in John's telling of the story, this isn't above all the bride's day or the groom's day or the mother of the bride's day, for none of them is even named. Indeed, the mother of Jesus isn't even named. As in John's telling of this story, the only name named is the name Jesus. Which, of course, I'm sure is John's way of telling us right from the beginning that guess what? This is Jesus' day. So let the bride and groom do what they're here to do, but keep an eye on Jesus and see what he does. When he gets to the reception, the next detail John mentions is that the wedding party ran out of wine, which kind of makes it seem, anyway, that maybe this is kind of early on in the reception. As in the time when you could just tell the DJ to stop the music and bring the lights up and tell people, hey, thanks for coming, it's been fun, isn't even near because the party's just begun, which surely means the planners of this party had way underestimated what would be needed for the party, which surely, at the very least, would have been a very embarrassing social faux pas. Jesus... Assuming omniscience was something he left behind when he left heaven behind to become fully human like us, Jesus found out about the situation after his mother did and then immediately went to find him and then to say to him, they have no wine. Notice she doesn't tell him what she wants him to do. She apparently expects that Jesus should know what she wants him to do without her telling him, which, of course, is neither the first, last, or only time in the history of the world and the world of relationships when this dynamic of, if you truly loved me, you would know what I want you to do without me saying it, comes into play. Often of times, of course, in that situation, people don't understand the unspoken thing being asked of them by another, which in my case, I want to tell you, my beloved wife can actually, she would have fixed that. My beloved wife can actually uh, affirm in my case. But Jesus did understand the unspoken thing being asked of him by his beloved mother. His reply to her at first whiff, however, seems at the very least odd and even a little bit rude, as what Jesus says to his mother is, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? Those whose knowledge of the original languages here is deeper than mine tell me that Jesus referring to his mother here as woman isn't rude the way maybe it sounds in English, but rather is an example of the fact that in all languages there are idiomatic phrases which don't translate well when translated literally. Indeed, one commentator I read said Jesus' word here translated as mother is actually a term of deep respect and love, and she then backed that up, in my opinion, quite convincingly by reminding us that Jesus with obvious deep love, later in John, will refer to his mother with the very same word, woman, while speaking to her from the cross. 
In any event, in this scene, he then explains to her the reason for his reticence. My time, he says, has not yet come. Remember how I said earlier that the bride and the groom and the mother of the bride all, I'm thinking, thought this was their day, but in John's mind it was actually Jesus' day? Well, Jesus, it turns out, is on the same side as the bride and the groom and the mother of the bride because he thinks it's their day, their time, not his too. Which he says to his mother, who what? Ignores him, right? In fact, vetoes him overrules him as she responds to what he said by not responding to him at all, but by rather telling a nearby servant, do whatever he tells you to do. My first take on this detail over the years, I want to tell you, has been to smile at what has always kind of seemed to me to be an apparent case here of, of one more mother motherly, passively, aggressively mothering her way through a situation to get her way. And maybe, I don't know, maybe, there might be some of that here, but I got to thinking this week about something else that I actually now think might actually be going on here. For Jesus, we believe and teach, though fully divine, became fully human. Became fully human as in every bit as human as we are, except, of course, Scripture says, when it comes to sin. For we, of course, like to say, I'm only human, as either an explanation or an excuse for sin, whereas Jesus, with neither excuses nor sin, became fully human with the sinless humanity humans were originally created for on his path, to a cross as the savior of sinners. But what occurred to me this week is that as someone who was truly and fully human, surely like us, surely that has to mean that he had some of the same needs as us, basic human needs, which I got to thinking this week maybe meant that he was so human that even he needed others, in this case his mother, to help him faithfully discern at least part of his way and some of his steps along his path. I mean, haven't probably most, if not all, humans had times, I surely have, when someone, in many cases someone who knew me, or someone who loved me saw something that I didn't see in a situation and also in me and then in one way or another said to me it is time here now for you to be you. It also occurred to me that though Jesus here as a human did say to his mother that it wasn't yet his time, timing, many of us humans have also surely discovered, and maybe here in this text, Jesus is fully human, is maybe discovering too, that timing is not necessarily determined entirely just by what's going on in our hearts 
and our minds within us, but also sometimes by what is going on with others and the world around us. Sometimes, in other words, our hearts or our minds may be the ones to say it's time, but other times it might be love looking at us or needs of others surrounding us which say to us it's time. In any case, his mother told the servants to do what he told them to do, and what he then did tell them to do was to fill with water six large stone jars, which were there, John says, for the Jewish rites of purification. Jews were raised to, both tradition and scripture taught them to, keep themselves pure with all kinds of washing, some of which were for ritualistic or religious or spiritual purposes, but others, and this is what I imagine is going on here, others were for basic hygiene. As in the very same kind of washing your mother said to wash with when she said to you, wash your hands and come to dinner. John, however, in his telling of Jesus' story, seldom, arguably never in John's case, mentions details that don't mean something to the story. My suspicion here is that in mentioning Jesus' use of these jars for something new, he is meaning us to understand right here at the beginning of the story that the reason to keep an eye on Jesus is because he is something oh so new. Moving on, after the servants did what they were told, Jesus, after no abracadabras or anything, told them next to draw some of the liquid out and take it to the party's sommelier, who tasted, John says, the water that had now become wine and didn't know where it came from, but the servants knew where it came from, after which he called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the $20 bottles of wine first, and then they haul out the three-buck chuck when others have imbibed enough to be less discriminating, but you saved the best wine until last. Let's be clear, I can bore you with the math afterwards if you would like, because I actually did the math and the physics and the science and all of that. But let's be clear, this is a lot of wine. Not just way more than that party needed, but exponentially more than that party needed. Which I am sure is precisely John's point. For one of the new things John told us in chapter 1 that Jesus has come to the world with is the newness of the fullness of grace. With John's clear point in this story now being that this grace of his, this grace that he is, is not a scarcity-based thing giving you just enough or barely enough. No, his grace born of his love for the world, for me, for you, is more than enough, more abundant than whatever is the abundance of guilt or shame or pain or sorrow or emptiness or sin that you bring to him with your jars running dry. Which is why, though, of course, this story is ultimately absolutely Jesus' story, I do invite you to remember his mother's 
role in the story too, her role being what? Her role being when there was a need to take it to Jesus. What Mary's taking it to Jesus in this story led to in John's Gospel was Jesus' very first miracle. Except that John doesn't say this was Jesus' very first miracle. He says it was Jesus' very first sign. In fact, in John's Gospel, there are a total of seven things that were surely miraculous that Jesus did. Except John never does use the word miracle. He refers to every single one of them as signs. The point of signs being what? The point of signs being rather not the sign themselves, but rather where or what or whom the sign is pointing you to. Provided, of course, that you don't just see, but also read the sign. Jesus' first disciples, says John, saw and read the first of his signs, and seeing and reading, says John, they believed in him. Which is where John ends this story, because as he will make clear at the end of his gospel, every sign there is, every Jesus story he tells, every word he writes in his gospel has, in the end, one purpose. And that is that you might believe in Jesus. And believing you might know life that is the real thing and an abundant thing for it is filled to the brim with Jesus. Signs like this sign. sign miracles like this particular miracle. That is to say extraordinary events in which the laws of science and nature were altered or overruled were in Scripture, I think it's important to note, actually not the each and every day norm. They were rather the majority of these kinds of science-altering, rule-bending things, things that occurred at a few particular times when there were some particular and pivotal things in Scripture's story that God, between God and God's people, that God that did want seen and read and understood. The second most, in this kind of extraordinary sense, miraculous time in Scripture accompanied the exodus from Egypt. And remember all the signs. When God wanted to make clear and understood that God's promises to the descendants of Abraham and Sarah were remembered and God therefore would free them from their slavery in Egypt. And of course the first most, in this kind of extraordinary sense, miraculous time in scripture, accompanied Jesus. When God wanted to make clear and understood that God's love for all people wasn't even going to take sin or death either as a final answer, separating God from those whom God loves. That said, though extraordinary and dramatic science-altering 
miracles weren't the each and everyday norm in Scripture and, to be clear, aren't the each and everyday norm now either. I believe, and Scripture affirms, God's creation being God's creation, other things that we may not think of as extraordinary nevertheless are miraculous every moment of every day. And every time, every single time, those miracles too are signs. And as such, they point us to something God wants us to see. Like, for example, every day the unending and ongoing and evolving miracle of creation. Which every moment, if you read the signs, points to the creation's creator. And so too, every day, the miracle of the newborn life of every baby ever born, that miracle which, held in the arms of those who read signs, points to the giver of life. Or how about the each and every day moment of each and every single day miracle of grace? That miracle being a sign that points to those who read signs, points them to all that is ours to have and to know and to love and to share, not as something that we've earned or accomplished, but rather as something that is just absolutely a gift. Or how about the miracle of faith? It being a sign that points believers who read signs to truths and promises that can only be seen by faith not by sight. Or how about the miracle of one person forgiving another? Which, let's be clear, that's a miracle every single time for it totally overturns the natural order of things. And in doing so, for those who read signs, forgiveness is such. Pointing us to the God who will not let sin speak the last judgment over any of us. Or about the miracle of hope? Hope being a sign that points beyond what is here and now in this world's sin-broken hands to what will be because the future and we too are in God's hands. Or how about the miracle of love? Love being, if the Bible is to be believed, a sign every single time that points every single time to God, for God is love. Or how about the miracle of bread and wine wrapped in a promise, that bread and wine being for those who read signs, something pointing to the one who comes to us today to say to you that everything he ever promised, he didn't just promise for people, he promised for you. Do you see what I'm saying? Miracles that break or alter the natural order of things aren't the norm, never have been. 
But that doesn't change the fact that, well, excuse me, signs, signs everywhere are signs. Miracles clothed in creation and in the flesh, in what we've come to know as the natural order of things, and which are everywhere, all the time, and in every time, and every time, they are signs. Signs right there to be seen, that you, seeing, might believe. And in believing, you might just not live, but do so abundantly. For you live filled to the brim with Jesus. Amen.